well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm glad you're with us on the program today. Uh, it's been a couple of days. It's been an eventful couple of days. You know, I was down in uh, Houston, Texas for the NRA annual meeting. We'll be uh, continuing to cover that, by the way, at Bearing Arms. Hope you enjoyed the uh, coverage over the weekend. Uh, I have to say, you know, the protests outside of the uh, NRA dwindled over the course of the weekend. Uh, I actually did see some conversations taking place between gun owners and gun control advocates far away from the uh, the media cameras. There were there were a couple of conversations that were happening, but for the most part, there's a lot of screaming on the part of uh, gun control activists blaming NRA members for. The horrific tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, in which 19 children were killed, as well as uh, two teachers, uh, multiple others injured. And, of course, the uh, conversations continue uh, virtually this week, not on Capitol Hill, but uh, uh, virtually among a, a group of Republican and Democrat senators who are looking to find some sort of policy solution uh, that they can then bring to the table and uh, maybe cobble together 60 votes for passage uh, next week when the Senate uh, ends its uh, Memorial Day recess. Now, on today's program, we're going to be talking with Ryan Petty, whose uh, daughter Elena was murdered at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida in 2018. You might have seen Ryan call uh, a gun control activist, David Hogg, a charlatan over the weekend for what he said was rewriting the history uh, around the legislative response in Florida post-Parkland. That legislative response uh, included, you know, raising the age to uh, buy a so-called assault rifle or assault weapon to a 21, as well as imposing a red flag legislation in Florida. Um, and according to David Hogg, that was uh, because Republicans were willing to come to the table with uh, groups like March for Our Lives. Ryan Petty says, no, actually, March for Our Lives was an impediment to the uh, legislative process, not a, a help to the legislative process, because, well, I'm gonna, I don't want to put words in Ryan's mouth. I'm going to let you hear what uh, he has to say about uh, how that went down in Florida and why Ryan doesn't believe that uh, Congress should be passing any new gun control legislation. Take a look and a listen. I've held my tongue for four years, but the events of last week in Uvalde, Texas, and let me just say my heart uh, is breaking. Um, the more we learn about what happened and what didn't happen, what should have happened and uh, my heart goes out to those families. Uh, unfortunately, I know what they're going through, and I wish that we could have been more effective in encouraging cities and counties and law enforcement around the country to take this threat seriously. But specifically on this topic, um, I'm angry. I'm angry because of the failures, and I'm angry because once again, after a tragedy, some groups decide that it's a good time to start fundraising off of tragedy and they want to start doing, you know, marches and protests. And it's really all about raising money. And it was bad enough, uh, the money that was raised on the Parkland tragedy, on the loss of my daughter and 16 others. I just couldn't take it anymore. We just cannot and should not allow these guys to raise money off a of tragedy. And I've had enough. Um, it was time to set the record straight about what happened in Parkland and what happened after Parkland. I think there have been a number of journalists that have weighed in 
that were there that saw what happened um, after Parkland and can attest to my version of events, which is that it was largely because of the parents and the families of the victims that we got the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas law passed. Um, and it was actually made more difficult because the March for Our Lives students went up there with a group of well-funded, well-organized, who's who on the left, went up there and actually poisoned the well, Cam. They went up there and just, you know, there's the pictures of them talking with legislators and carrying their signs. And that was part of it. But the other part of it was demanding entry into offices and demanding that they ban assault weapons and demanding, you know, their list of gun control, uh, their prescription, which was only gun control. And it really set us back. And so it was even more difficult for the families to advocate for some, some changes in Florida. And some of those changes, I'll admit, Cam, are not popular with your audience. I, I understand that. We raised the, the age to buy a rifle in the state of Florida from 18 to 21. Not popular. I get it. And we implemented red flag laws here. But that was sort of secondary to the real changes we made which was to really elevate school safety uh, in the state of Florida. And that was really what the Parkland bill was about. It had really no, almost nothing to do with gun control. Well, and I would say, too, that, you know, listen, this is a part of the legislative process. Uh, and nobody, I think, is ever going to get their way 100 percent of the time. So those folks who disagree, for example, with the uh, raising the age limit, that's been challenged in court. That lawsuit is is underway. Uh, we've seen similar challenges to uh, gun bans for under 21s. The Ninth Circuit actually recently ruled that uh, California's law banning the sale of so-called assault weapons to uh, 18, 19, and 20-year-olds is unconstitutional. So for folks who don't like these these gun control measures or the gun control aspects of what you did in Florida, there is a mechanism uh, by which those laws can be challenged. Uh, and you and I have had, you know, conversations before about the uh, the red flag laws and, and uh, our, you know, we have a difference of opinion on those. But you and I have also been able to sit down and have these conversations about what really works. And as you say, the emphasis on school security, on the Guardian program, uh, making sure that there is an armed response, you know, that's a part of the conversation, too. Uh, and it seems to me like what we're seeing right now in Congress is, again, this sort of myopic focus on the gun, right? So we're hearing, you know, about talks about uh, maybe possibly trying to expand background checks in some way, even though the uh, killer in Uvalde passed a background check. We're we're hearing about, uh, it sounds at this point like the focus may be on, you know, providing grants to states uh, to establish red flag laws. Um, but I'm not hearing a lot of talk right now, Ryan, about, again, improving school security or uh, improving uh, officer response to shootings like this. I mean, again, in, in Parkland and in Uvalde, what we saw were that minutes were wasted waiting for those officers to go in to take on that shooter and to save lives. Yeah, what that says to me is that we need, you know, we spent two years now with this, the same group on the left, right? It's They're all one big amorphous group, but the same folks out screaming, defund the police, defund the police. So what does that mean? That means the law enforcement doesn't have the equipment or the training necessary to do the job. 
right? And so we saw this in Uvalde. Now there's more to come out. There's, uh, you know, there's investigation. It took us a year to get our first report out, almost a year after Parkland. So we need to give the authorities time to investigate. But it looks like lack of equipment and lack of training, and there may be some other elements um, that we'll all reserve judgment on uh, that that caused that here. But it's the same these same groups yelling for you know defund the police that are causing the problem, right? Number one. Number two. Let me let me address the the uh, you know we'll never know exactly why the attacker chose that element Rob Elementary School, but my guess is because he knew there was no armed there would be no armed resistance there because in the Uvalde Independent School District. They didn't put an armed presence at the elementary schools. They had them at the secondary schools. That's unfortunate. In the state of Florida, we've chosen to protect all of our schools. And let me be clear about what's going on in, at the federal level. I said this when I testified to the Senate Judiciary Committee after Parkland. I don't believe the answers can be found within the chamber I was sitting in. There's nothing at the federal level that they're going to do short of banning all firearms, right, and confiscating them, that would make any difference. And that is simply not on the table. It's simply not possible. And it wouldn't work anyway, because criminals don't obey laws, right? So just a reminder for everyone in the audience, there hasn't been a school attack in the last 20 years where a, where a background check would have, you know, would have made a difference, right? All of these attackers passed a background check or the person they got the gun from, usually a parent, passed a background check. Background checks will not stop these school attacks. There are things that will, but because, th see, this is my problem with what March for Our Lives did. They make this all about gun control and it literally sucks the ox oxygen out of the room. So you can't have a conversation about pragmatic practical solutions that will work i i i i agree with you uh 100 and i you know i i have to say i mean as somebody who is in the room um down in florida tell me about how that process worked and did it did it ever get to a point down there where you thought oh my gosh we're putting politics ahead of policy because i see that taking place in dc right now this is an election year democrats obviously want to make gun control a campaign issue i think that there are some republicans who maybe genuinely are looking for uh some sort of federal legislation that they think could make a difference but i suspect that there are also some republicans who are saying listen um we can't be seen as doing nothing when people are asking us to do something uh and i don't think that politics it should be the driving factor here. I think we actually need to be putting policy first and politics needs to be a, a non-issue. Uh, although I know that's not going to happen because it's the politicians who are sitting at the table and crafting their do something solution. Yeah. What we did that was different here in Florida. And I give our, our then governor Scott um, a lot of credit for this. He convened a panel of experts from multiple disciplines and he said, I want solutions that will work. And, you know, some of that did include raising the age to 21. And there were some reasons why those experts recommended that. But most of it had to do with making sure our schools are not soft targets, making sure the simple things like locking gates, locking doors 
are done, making sure our kids and our student and our teachers and staff know what to do in case of uh, an emergency, and then funding school safety at a level that uh, and 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 keeping a focus on it that we had not had previously um, to Parkland. But none of those things get the conversation. Uh, going in at the federal level because you've got one side screaming loudly, right, for the one thing that they want, which is to control, you know, to control guns, right? They want, they don't like the idea that you and I um, are armed. They don't like the idea that we can go to the store and pass a background check and, and purchase a firearm. They don't like that. So they want to tell us how to live. And law-abiding gun owners, again, are not the problem here. And so the solutions they put forward have really little to do with making schools safer, and they have everything to do with restricting our freedoms and making us or forcing us to live the way they want us to live. All right, now I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second here because you just said that law-abiding gun owners are not the problem, but you also pointed out that over the last 20 years, uh, virtually every one of these school shooters either passed a background check themselves or they got their gun from somebody who passed a background check, right? So the gun control advocates would say, aha, Ryan, that does show that law-abiding gun owners are at least um, have, have to be included in our policy discussions because we are seeing people who are law-abiding up until the point they decide to start murdering innocent people. I is it is it your opinion that in these cases that we've seen, these folks who were able to pass a background check also typically had red flags in their past that had gone unaddressed, that if if the system had worked the way we, we, we think it's supposed to work, that they either would have been prohibited from purchasing a firearm or they would not have been able to get their hands on one legally? Yeah, and we're seeing some, I've heard some early reporting about this this killer in Uvalde that uh, had apparently had been making threats for some time and none of that had mm -hmm. been put on a record and none of that had been prevented. Uh, prevented him from passing a background check. Look, background checks are absolutely worthless if you're not including the information in the, you know, if there's no record that would prevent you from from purchasing a firearm. And again, once again, there there were warning signs. Now, we don't know all of the details yet. I was convinced from the beginning that there were warning signs. It looked initially like maybe he had only communicated the threat 30 minutes, 15, 30 minutes before the attack began. But now we're starting to see the same thing we see every time, which is there were warning signs. They were not heated. And therefore, there was no problem passing a background check. So we've got to start taking these threats seriously. One of the things we've done in Florida there were two reports. I get a I get an email every morning from the Department of Education that talks about safe schools. Two more instances in the state of Florida just this week where students or teenagers threaten schools uh, in the state of Florida, and we take those seriously. Both were arrested, both were charged with felonies, and both will have to answer for the threats that they made. But we're taking those seriously. They will have a record, and they will have difficulty passing a background check if they're found guilty. Which, again, uh, it, you know, very much is taking this seriously. Uh, and, uh, you know, I guess my concern is that uh, and, and tell me if I'm wrong uh, in Florida. Do you think that that would have been the case, let's say, 
uh, if this had happened in September, if we, you know, if, if, if a 10 year old had said, you know, the first week going back to school, uh, um, I, I'm going to go shoot up a school Would the response have been that serious or is, is some of that response because we are so close to the Uvalde shooting or, or is it really working well in Florida addressing these threats seriously when they come up? Yeah, I look, I think the Florida sheriffs, Florida law enforcement is taking this seriously. And I think, quite honestly, the school districts, for the most part, are taking this seriously, or at least sharing information with law enforcement, which was not happening prior to Parkland. So are we perfect? Absolutely not. Are there opportunities, gaps and holes and places we need to improve? Uh, Absolutely. hundred percent. Could it happen in Florida? Yes, it could still happen in Florida, but are we doing better than we were? Yes, uh, we are because we're taking these we're taking these seriously now. After any attack, vigilance increases. Parents now who were uh, not concerned, you know, because Parkland was four years ago and hadn't really seen one of these attacks on the scale of a Parkland or Uvalde or Sandy Hook. They're now concerned again. So I'm getting emails and, and requests on social media. What do we do? You know, what can we do to, to keep our kids safe? So vigilance is up. That's good. But my heart breaks because it shouldn't take a tragedy for us to take these things seriously. And no one should be making a threat against a school. I think that should be prosecuted. Uh, it's up to each state to decide whether that's a felony, a misdemeanor, what level of, fel- you know, everybody can decide, each state can decide what that should mean. In Florida, we take them seriously. And if you communicate a threat in the state of Florida, um, you're going to have a record. If you were at that table, or I guess the virtual table right now with the uh, Republican and Democratic senators who are uh, trying to find, you know, some some sort of compromise language what would you tell them? Where where would you tell them to start looking? And what would you tell them would be the most effective thing that they specifically could do at the federal level? Yeah, so what I what, what I would do and what I've told a couple of our senators uh, uh, privately is, first of all, do not cave in. Uh, the, the desire to do something the unintended consequences of doing anything or doing something are often worse than just doing nothing, quite frankly. And so I've urged them to do nothing at this point because there aren't any proposals on the table that would matter in my mind. Now, there are things they could be doing. There's an act that's been sitting there since Parkland called the Eagles Act that expands uh, the funding for the National Threat Assessment Center at the Secret Service who study these attacks, do publish fantastic research and train school districts and law enforcement for free um, on how to identify threats and what to do about those. That would be incredibly helpful because imagine if the Uvalde school district had understood and taken action on the threats that this killer had made previously that we're just learning about. If they'd taken those seriously and done something about them, this tragedy might have been prevented before he even got to the unlocked school door. You know, and as you say, that's there. That's just sitting there in Congress, not moving at all. Senator Grassley's had it on. I mean, I went up there to help try to get it passed right after Parkland. It just it just sits there because it's not popular with one side of the aisle and they just only want to pass gun control. So they won't consider 
a bill that would actually improve school safety until they get what they want, which are universal background checks or an assault weapons ban. Again, politics over policy. Mm -hmm. uh, Ryan Petty, listen, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for coming on the program, and uh, I hope we get a chance to do this again very soon. Thank you for having me, Cam. I appreciate Ryan joining us on the program. And, you know, we uh, I, 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 I would like to have Ryan back at some point to talk about red flag laws uh, and maybe even delve a little bit deeper into the idea of, you know, these uh, gun bans for under 21s. But as I said, there are ways to challenge those laws. Uh, and in fact, I think that uh, given what we've seen in the Ninth Circuit and frankly, given what we've even seen in the Eleventh Circuit in the Florida case in particular, there are legitimate constitutional concerns uh, over banning uh, uh, sales of long guns or of uh, the most you know, commonly sold rifle in America uh, to adults under the age of 21. Um, those issues, I think, should be addressed legislatively in terms of knocking down uh, those bad bills before they become law. But at least we can challenge those laws in court. Um, what we're seeing right now from Congress, again, I think are efforts that don't get us any closer to actually preventing these types of attacks. And actually, in many cases, I think get us further away from these substantive issues that we do need to be talking about, ranging from school security to, as Ryan talked about, the, the mental health aspect and the mental health component to virtually every one of these targeted attacks on our schools over the past couple of decades. Right now, though, let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen Story, our recidivist report, our good deed of the day. We'll start with our recidivist report from Chicago, Illinois. Five months after escaping from electronic monitoring, he helped shoot up a carload of people injuring two. According to prosecutors, that from the website CWB Chicago. Uh, talking about a guy named Louis Molina Jr., who is a twice convicted criminal who escaped from electronic monitoring last September and then remained on the run until mid-April of this year, according to prosecutors and court records. Five days before he was arrested in April, Molina and four-time felon Hector Rivera, according to CWB Chicago, allegedly opened fire on a carload of people outside of a liquor store. Two people were shot. Now, CWB Chicago notes that Molina is the 21st person accused of killing or shooting or trying to shoot or kill someone in Chicago this year while awaiting trial for a felony. 49 victims in those cases, 11 of whom died. Rivera, also awaiting trial on a felony case. This was actually his third felon in possession case. He is the 15th person charged with killing or shooting or trying to shoot or kill someone in Chicago this year while awaiting trial for a felony. According to Molina's, or according to CWB Chicago, Molina's case shows that uh, Judge Charles Burns sentenced him to 27 months for possessing a stolen firearm in 2017. Now that, again, a felony crime. But when cops caught him again in illegal possession of a firearm in May of 2020, prosecutors only charged him with a misdemeanor. He ended up taking a guilty plea in December of that year, and the judge sentenced him to just one day in jail which was basically negated by the one day that he spent in custody after he was arrested. Five months later, May 23rd, 2021, uh, according to CB Chicago, a Chicago police officer watching surveillance camera feeds saw a man holding a gun in the middle of the road, uh, 18th Street, or 18th Place, rather. 
Uh, patrol officers went to the scene. They saw Molina walk to the back of a truck, place something inside. Turned out to be a gun. They arrested him. This is now again the third case. Uh, Judge Charles Beach set bail conditions that allowed Molina to go home on electronic monitoring. All he had to do was pay a $1,000 bail deposit. Four months later, he stopped showing up for court. Judge issues an arrest warrant. Prosecutors file charges for escape from electronic monitoring. And then again, he's allegedly responsible for uh, a shooting five days before he was taken into custody. Uh, he was uh, indicted by a grand jury on May 11th of 15 counts of attempted murder, two rounds of aggravated battery by discharging a fireman, three counts of aggravated discharge of a fireman to an occupied vehicle for that case. And he is now being held without bail, but only now is he being held without bail. Up until then, slap on the wrist, even if you're a felon in possession of a firearm. So again, when we hear people talk about, well, wait, we only had more laws on the books. And you hear gun owners talk about enforcing the existing laws in the books. This is exactly what we're talking about here, right? These were uh, crimes for which Molina would have been eligible for at least five years in prison. And instead, prosecutors in this case uh, plea bargain him down to a misdemeanor. He gets a day in jail. Clearly, that didn't make much of an impression on him. Or actually, maybe it did make an impression on him because the next time he gets arrested, illegally possessing a firearm, and he's allowed to uh, walk out on electronic monitoring, he just decides, Whatever. They're not going to come after me or they're not going to find me. And for months and for months and for months, that was the case. Again, while uh, he was allegedly committing more violent crimes. Today's armed citizen story from Webster, Texas, where police say a woman shot a man to death after he broke into an apartment. This was uh, about 9 p.m. Monday night uh, on the uh, Gulf Freeway. Police say that they believe that the uh, woman inside the apartment was defending herself as well as children when she shot the man who broke down her front door. There were several people inside the apartment, along with the woman, including several kids. Officer said she fired one shot uh, as the guy broke down her door. Uh, Lieutenant J.P. Harelka of the Webster PD said he forced entry through the front door. Don't have information on whether he kicked it or how he opened it, but he did break the front door frame, got the door completely open and entered the location. Police say they're still investigating the relationship between the man and woman. Uh, but uh, again, at this point, they say that they believe that this woman was acting in self-defense when she shot and killed the man who broke through her front door. And finally today, our good deed of the day, Louisville, Kentucky, where police say a good Samaritan came to the aid of a woman who was being raped in a park. Police arrested 41-year-old Lamario Averhart. Uh, back on uh, May 13th in Indianapolis for first-degree rape uh, that, uh, again, took place in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, Lindsay Lynch, who is with the Sex Crimes Unit of the Louisville Police Department, said that she is incredibly grateful for the actions of the Good Samaritan, who, uh, quote, uh, came to her rescue because she's at least here to talk about it. I think that's the main thing she keeps focusing on to get her through this. According to uh, Detective Lynch, the woman met Averhart at a bar on the night of the Kentucky Derby. She said they ended up talking and hanging out the whole night. They left together. They were going to go to another location, and then they went by the park because he told her that's where he liked to go to clear his head. Uh, instead, he sexually assaulted her. It was about 7 a.m., broad daylight, and somebody who was uh, walking by saw what was happening and actually confronted Averhart. Detective Lynch says they were on the ground. The sexual occult was occurring. He got in between. There was a vehicle that they had come to the park, and he got in between the vehicle and the suspect and actually was like, I don't know what's happening here, but I'm going to have to take these keys out of the car. 
because the keys were still in the vehicle, so then the suspect couldn't leave. Uh, Lynn said the Good Samaritan and Everhart physically fought over the keys before Everhart took off. The Good Samaritan chased him for several blocks, but even after he got away, he had done enough to save the woman and help police arrest Everhart again days later in Indianapolis. Detective Lynn said, quote, not only was it crucial, if he had gotten back in the car, the car wasn't his. There were so many things that we might not have known if he had not intervened. And she said that she hopes this instance serves as a message to the community to help when they can. Again, I, 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 I can't disagree. Uh, if you do see something and you are in a position to act, you should. Uh, but again, I think this is also an argument for those good Samaritans out there to be able to protect themselves. We don't know what would have happened had Everhart been armed. Uh, that good Samaritan, if he were not prepared to protect and defend himself, very well could have ended up as a victim as well. We absolutely need to be looking out for each other. But we also need to be looking out for ourselves. And we need to be able to protect and defend ourselves against those who would harm us, strangers, or the ones that we love. Now, that is going to do it for this edition of Barry Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program. As always, we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Barry Arms Cam and Company. In the meantime, be sure to check out BarryandArms.com throughout the day for even more Second Amendment news and information that you need to know about. If you like what you see, you can always become a VIP subscriber. Just use the promo code GUNRIGHTS when you go to BarryandArms.com slash subscribe. As our way of saying thanks for showing your support for the independent pro second amendment journalism we're doing at bearing arms we're going to give you exclusive analysis news story stuff you won't get anywhere else because your support does matter and does make a difference thanks again we're back tomorrow but until then be well be safe and be free